everyone and welcome to Treating You. This is the first episode in a new podcast by Bart's Health NHS Trust. I'm your host with this episode, Freddie Cocker, and I'm in the communications team here at Bart's Health. Sometimes I'll be on hosting duties and other times it might be another member of our great communications team instead. Now, we know what you're thinking. There are tons and tons and tons of podcasts out there already. So why listen to ours, you might ask? Over the last two years, COVID-19 has put our staff more in the spotlight than ever before. But how much do you really know about the people who make our trust what it is? At Bart's Health, here in North East London, we want to give a voice to the 18,000 staff we have, shine a light on their day-to-day working lives, and show you, the public, some of their amazing stories and experiences. And hopefully, you just might enjoy it. In this podcast, we'll be chatting to the people who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients. Everyone from porters and therapists to midwives, doctors and ward clerks. If they have a great story, we want to share it. We'll discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey and how they treat you. In the first episode of Treating You, I'm speaking with Dr. Carla Croft and Dr. Anthony Allnat and the importance of having compassionate conversations in your life. Carla is a consultant clinical psychologist at the Trust and the lead for our in-house psychological support service, which was set up in 2021 to support our staff experiencing mental health difficulties as a result of COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Allnat is a consultant anaesthetist at the Royal London Hospital and has worked in medicine since 1989. Tony developed post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, after he coordinated the anaesthetic response in theatres at the Royal London on 7th of July 2005. This was the day that terrorists bombed London, killing 52 people and injuring over 700 others. It became known as 7-7, and Tony, along with his colleagues, were tasked with treating nine Priority 1 patients. This means those with immediately life-threatening injuries who were arriving in the operating theatres in under 90 minutes. They were being transferred from A&E to theatres and onwards to the intensive care unit by teams of anaesthetists and operating department practitioners, or ODPs for short. The mental health conversation was in a very different place 17 years ago and support mechanisms for all staff affected including Tony were poorly defined with shame and stigma surrounding them. In this episode we discuss the events of that day, what happened to Tony's mental health in the aftermath and how he now supports others with their mental health in the trust and advocates for better support for NHS staff who have been affected by events that they have been involved in at work, in particular the daily traumas that are seen at the Royal London. We also discuss the importance of compassionate conversations with Carla, how the mental health conversation has changed in the years following the events of 7-7 and how all of you listeners, not just our staff, can develop your own toolkit to have compassionate conversations with the people in your life. So here is how this episode of Treating You with Carla Croft and Tony Allnat went down. Carla Croft, Tony Allnat, welcome to the first episode of Treating You. Thank you for being my guinea pigs on this podcast. How are you both? Excited? Nervous? We've had a bit of technical difficulties before we started, but we're, we're here now. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Tony, I want to come to you first. So tell me briefly how you got into healthcare way back in 1989, all those years ago, your journey into Bart's Health, and then this very big event which changed the course of yours and anyone who lived through it in healthcare in so many ways. Yeah, thanks, Freddie. So you're right, I did arrive in Whitechapel in 1989 to study medicine at what was then the London Hospital Medical College. I really enjoyed my time in Whitechapel. I was the president of the college in 1993, qualified in 95, was a houseman at Royal London in 1995 at the professorial surgical unit. Then I went on to work in A&E and medicine in various places, including Australia, and began anaesthetic training at Royal London in 1998. I started off as an SHO, senior house officer, 
then I became a registrar, then mm. yeah, 2005. Yeah. <laughs> you were an anaesthetic senior registrar and you were carrying the on-call bleep at Royal London on 7-7. So tell me about the day and your memories of that event and then everything that transpired. I was actually carrying the bleep as a favour to a friend. It was not my turn to carry it, but uh, nevertheless, it was a good job to do actually because it gave you great flexibility during the day and you could choose what activities you'd like to do through the day. So it was actually a really good thing to do. The first thing actually wasn't didn't come through the, the bleep that day. It came from a mobile telephone call from one of the consultants who said, there's been an incident with some power surges on some tube lines. I think we're going to get some casualties in. And I said, well, I haven't heard anything. And then literally about 30 seconds later, the bleep went off and said, there was a major instance and we should all report to our stations. So that's how it began. There was a bit of confusion at the beginning because we were told to report to an area where they weren't expecting us to be. I knew the major incident plan for theatres. Fortunately enough, I'd actually looked at it two weekends before when I was on call. It wasn't something that I think most people did, or but it was just I was quite fortunate in that respect. Once I had recognised that we had to start emptying the theatres because they all had patients who were already on the table. And I met up with the nursing theatre coordinator. We set up a command centre in the reception area. And one of the first things that was obvious actually was that all the communications had gone down. So we didn't have any internal telephone calls. We didn't have any external phones. All the mobile phones had been cut off. So communication was going to be a big deal. So we set up a runner system to enable some sort of communication between Resus and where we were, the command centre, and the anaesthetic library, which is where the anaesthetists were gathering, ready to be sent down to resus as necessary. Once we'd set that up, we prepared the theatres as best we could, and then the patients started to arrive. Mm. That's when uh, things got quite busy, mm. actually, as you, I'm sure you can imagine. I think I've mentioned to you already that there were nine Priority One patients that came through within about 90 minutes. And bearing in mind, you know, an hour before that, Many of the theatres had a patient on the table already. Getting those patients packed up, their operations finished and out to wherever they were going was a real challenge. Mm. And to make sure the theatres were then restocked and ready to receive the patients so they came up mm. in, in very quick time. As a clinician, um, Tony, I'm sure in your training and in your early days, you had to get used to the concept of death or seeing it or seeing it in some capacity pretty quickly. You know, every person in healthcare, I guess, has to in some sort of clinical role. But when it's so visceral, so in your face and so all consuming like that day was, how did your mind cope with that? And, and how were you and your colleagues able to do your job to the best of your abilities? So and you're right. There was, there was a lot of visual horror, I guess you'd call it that day. And I think as a group, we are well-versed in seeing it and well-versed, well able to suppress it because we see a lot of it anyway. The, yeah, the Royal, Royal London was a trauma centre, is a trauma centre, and we see a lot of it and we, we suppress it so that we can do our job at the time because you can't sort of allow it to take over. So once the patients were in the operating theatres and I was just going around the theatres to make sure that people were okay, having seen sort of half a dozen patients all in really terrible condition, I did have a moment thinking... Actually, I've seen enough, actually. I've seen enough. But I had to carry on. It was, it was a hard moment, mm. actually. On that day, would you say that you saw the worst of humanity and the best of humanity in how you were able to support people and how your colleagues supported you, perhaps? There were a lot of challenges. And the communications were one. The volume of patients were another. But they were, all, they were both sort of relatively easy to suppress. But there was a lot of humanity within the staff members, but a lot of human factors, if you like, because a lot of people had friends and family who were potentially just on one of those trains that had been blown up or maybe the bus. 
And because there was no communications, they couldn't find out if they were okay. Equally, their families wanting to know that they'd got to work safely. And all of this was swimming around while we were trying to treat the patients who had such those, such severe injuries. Mm. I think it would be fair to say that it was the impact of seeing my colleagues in such a stressed state, I think would be fair to say. That is uh, one of the most challenging things on the day. The visual horror and what I saw actually came back later on in flashbacks and intrusive memories, nightmares. But on the actual day, I found it uh, that seeing my friends under such stress was a major factor. Mm. You said to me that on reflection, prior to 7-7, you were someone who might have been vulnerable to PTSD, but you weren't able to recognise that, which is perfectly understandable. Why do you think that was? Why were you vulnerable to it? I think it's fair to say that I didn't have any specific education about how ongoing trauma could affect you in the long term. So as a young man, my father died very suddenly, and I certainly had an episode of mental health problems after that. But again, it wasn't recognised, it wasn't treated. I was made to cope with it on my own without any specific intervention. Mm. And I think that was one of the things that made me made me vulnerable. But equally, there was, there's so much stigma attached to anyone with a mental health problem. Even if you began to recognise it, you would think, well, I just need to suppress it and carry on. And I think that's a, a reflection of the time and the fact that mental health conversations were only happening behind closed mm. doors. And certainly not in yeah. groups or not. So it wasn't it wasn't an advertised. Education. Yeah. 2005 was a very different place for the mental health conversation. Tony. It feels like 50 years ago, to be honest, because of the steps that we've taken in that time. And I'm right in saying that you weren't given the right support from the very limited support there was available. You said that decision was made for you without revealing sort of too many more details in that. You then went on annual leave for a week post 7-7. So you missed out on that immediate peer support. What was your mental health like at that point? Immediately after 7-7, the next day I came back to work, but I had barely slept. I had already had the most dreadful nightmares and I'd woken up at one o'clock in the morning and hadn't gone back to sleep. So in fact, I, I arrived in the operating theatres on that day in a state which was not suitable to anaesthetise anyone. So uh, they actually sent me home, which was completely the right thing to do. The day after that, I came in for the next two days, I came in to anaesthetise the patients who were coming back for their relooks and their refashioning of wounds and redressing. And I think that's a thing that's often forgotten, that it wasn't just the day that happened. These patients were coming back for at least a couple of weeks to have their wounds looked at and redressed and modified as appropriate. Although I was on annual leave, all my colleagues and friends were anaesthetizing these people repeatedly. And although it was traumatic for them, and for many of them, that will have been the major trauma actually of 7-7, the following weeks. There will have been moments in tea rooms, in coffee rooms, in rest areas, and in the operating theatres where people could just sit and chat and say, actually, you know, this is terrible. And unfortunately, just I was I just happened to be on annual leave for the next week and a bit. And so I missed out on all mm. that. And that was not a, a good thing for me personally. And I think actually missing out on that peer support was a major factor in my future mm. problems. Shortly after 7-7, there was a second attempted terrorist attack on London, which happened in the form of 21-7. And I think sometimes this can be forgotten about a little bit in the wider history books. How did that repeat event trigger your PTSD, which I'm sure you perhaps weren't even fully aware of at the time? I didn't understand what was happening to my mental health. And on that day, I was in the emergency theatre and I heard about these bombs that hadn't gone off. And I have to say, I had a significant heart sink. I just didn't know if I could go through the whole thing again so quickly, which actually reminded me of 
on the day itself because because the communications had all gone down, there was a lot of fake news around. Mm. And after we were just at the busiest point in theatres, the communication, the mobile phones came back on and a lot of people were getting texts saying, there's been another bomb, there's been four bombs gone off. And people were relaying these messages to us at the command centre and we were thinking, we've got nowhere to put people. If there's another wave of bombers, then we don't have anywhere to put anyone else. So that was a major stressor on the day. And on the 21st, that came back to remind me of you know the, the troubles that had happened the two weeks mm. before, like reinforcing the um, all the terrible bits. Yeah. Really. A year later, you were rotated back to Royal London, you were back at work. However, you hadn't realised how much you'd changed. And a colleague said to you very bluntly, what's happened to you, Tony? You're a wreck. Did that shock you? And looking <laughs> back, did that hurt you? Or do you think you almost needed to hear it to realise you needed help. Yeah, so that year was um, I was on rotation in North East London and Essex to the various hospitals, which was which is a planned rotation. It's what all the registrars do. And at every hospital I went to, they were very keen to know what had happened on the day. So they would ask me to give a presentation and reliving it several times and then as a, in a public forum. And then obviously in private as well as people who would ask you. It was just constantly reinforcing how it had been. And although you know the hospital and the, the theatres and ITU, we all performed amazingly that day, you know, you do dwell on some of the negative things. And so one of the things that affected me, I've already mentioned, was, was my colleagues' responses. And there were a couple of people who I remember very clearly in the middle of the incident, coming into the hospital because they'd been called in, one was the night registrar who was on the train that had blown up, that was in front of the train that had blown up. She came back into the hospital to see if she could offer any help. I didn't even know what to say to her because she was you know, in shock. And the other registrar who I mentioned to, someone I know very well, he was walked through the Gate instant area by a police escort so that he could get back to the London. And he saw a line of tarpaulin on the street and you know, I knew him very well. I've never seen him look like that and I'll never forget his face that day. It was really shocking. So recalling these stories and, you know, I have to say that I was probably more on the negative side, recalling the negative things. When I came back to the London, I think it would be fair to say I was in a state of high alert. I was twitchy. I was unable to focus properly. I now know that I had hyperarousal, hypervigilance. And when my colleague said to me, you're a wreck, I thought, yeah, actually, I probably am. <laughs> I thought I was hiding it well. But um, in fact, that wasn't the case mm. at all. Let's fast forward again now, because in 2017, we had three terrorist attacks happen in London. We had the one at the Westminster Bridge, the one at London Bridge and Borough Market and the Finsborough Park Mosque. When these took place, you were told that the well-being resources on offer to staff affected were the same as they were post 7-7. So positively, how did you go about changing that, Tony? And tell me briefly about the Theatre Wellbeing Project as well. After those three incidents, the medical coordinator for major incidents, Roselle, uh, came to speak to me and she just said that, you know, we haven't really moved on since 2005. You know, what should we do? She had some ideas. I had some ideas. And we enlisted the help of two psychologists. So in, uh, in 2018, we started a series of events. They were half day events where people could, first of all, have received some education. They could uh, engage in some self-compassion, and they could listen to people telling their own stories about what had happened to them, not just as major incidents, but in, in their life as, as a clinician. And it was multidisciplinary. It was, it was nurses, healthcare support workers, uh, 
operating department practitioners, anaesthetists, and some surgeons turned up as well. And it was actually very successful to the point that the staff who had missed it got quite upset, actually. And they said that we need this as well. So we did another one a few months later, and then another one six months after that. And we were just planning for our fourth one uh, when the pandemic Mm. hit. Before I turn to you, Carla, the final point you wanted to make and you were passionate about talking about this, Tony, was the importance of embedding psychological support in the workplace. So tell me why you're passionate about that first. During the pandemic, we tried a few different projects, but the thing that really made the difference was that we held daily self-compassion sessions for all theatre staff. And that's sort of the the definition of embedding psychological support into your workplace. So the self-compassion sessions were led by psychologists, And they made a massive, massive difference to the staff who were attending. Because when you arrive in work, particularly when there's a lot of unfamiliar risk, if you like, even just just to coming to work, you have this extreme cognitive load. And allowing yourself a minute just to think about what that means to you, acknowledging the stresses and releasing them before you start work, it increases focus and it, it increases safety for the patients. So it is absolutely, in my mind, essential that this sort of session, these sort of sessions and embedding them as Carla and her team have now demonstrated, it's absolutely essential. We now run these, those sessions twice a week and uh, Carla and, and Mark Winwood particularly, they are the people who are looking after them for us. Carla, I want to come to you now. So tell me briefly what you've done with the psychological support service as part of Bart's Health to support the mental health of staff, why it was set up and maybe the mental health landscape at time of recording. Well, I think in many ways, COVID has brought to the fore some of the things that Tony has been touching on have been going on for decades, really. But I think that COVID has concentrated everybody's minds and realised that perhaps the landscape is that the numbers are getting very, very high and it's going to be difficult to meet that need, having a psychologist model that is a one-to-one way of working. So our kind of overarching manifesto is really to change the conversation, to create a caring community, you know, rather than necessarily a protective caring community, rather than necessarily that one-to-one psychology model that maybe we we use in, in days gone by. People with PTSD, and I speak for both myself and Tony here in living with it as a diagnosis, experience a great deal of shame about it. And I think this is one of the main ways the stigma manifests itself. So why do clinicians, doctors, consultants feel this shame? And how do we empower colleagues around them to help remove that shame gradually and compassionately? Well, I think that it's almost the perfect storm in healthcare because there's a really unhelpful narrative for all of us that work in healthcare around needing to be the carer, needing to be the strong one, needing to be someone who doesn't suffer, which in fact is not possible as a human. There's an impossible kind of narrative there for healthcare workers that interacts really badly with serious incidents, um, traumas, you know, difficulties that arise. So it's sort of the perfect storm where you've got a profession that has a narrative that is about needing to be strong, needing to be perfect. And then you've got things that happen throughout the professional life that are really quite scary and that cause, cause people to suffer. And so we're trying to, in our team, trying to change the narrative around how human it is to suffer in those circumstances and what types of things are absolutely normal. You know, Tony touched on all the things that are just very normal to experience in the first few weeks. Trouble with sleep, flashbacks, the body being very aroused, 
you know, if we can change the conversation around these things and remind people that this is very, very normal and it's happening because they're human, we're straight away doing something about what we think is at the core of PTSD, which is that feeling of shame. The important thing that people, I think, need to know about these conversations and how to go about them, Carla, is language. And for me, I speak a lot about this in my personal life, that it's about reaching in and not putting the responsibility of people to reach out who are suffering. Why is that important for people like Tony and any of the listeners in general? I almost call it reaching across because what we need to do is we need to just broaden out. We we need to realise that anybody can have a conversation about how normal it is to experience psychological suffering. It's our team being a part of making certain words more common, more everyday, making certain conversations more everyday. How did you sleep last night? What's been going on with you? And just really using our relationships with the comms team and all of our colleagues to make these conversations a normal part of working life, especially in healthcare, where very difficult things do happen. You know, we're seeing it out there in the community. Teens are using words like triggered and, you know, all of these kind of things. And there's a downside sometimes to that. But the upside is that these words are becoming normal. And that means that somebody in Tony's situation would have found it very easy to talk to a neighbour, to talk to a friend in the weeks after those events about what he was going through with absolute normal feelings without any shame at all. So it's just about getting the words out, getting the conversation out having the conversations and we are the catalyst for that I think in the trust but what we want to do is sometimes we call it spreading the love we want to make sure that everybody's okay with having these conversations over the next year or two. I want to finish the podcast Carla by putting what we've spoken about into practice so let's pretend that I'm someone in distress and and I confide in you about something I need a compassionate conversation to ensure I don't become worse and my experience is validated so tell me how you'd go about that and what are some of the top tips for the listeners who might be Bart's health staff but might be just a general member of the public who could use it in their own lives well this is one of my favorite things to talk about because often when I go through some top tips for these type of conversations I get a really relaxed response from people saying to me things like, oh, I do have these kind of conversations already. I'm already good at these kind of things. I didn't realize. I thought it required some really special training or skills. But actually, it doesn't. It has to do with just sometimes simple things like stopping, turning the phone off, closing the door and saying, you know, I've got half an hour of you. Making that space, making eye contact. These are the things that downregulate our nervous systems, that make us feel safe and therefore start the process of healing. Really regular things. Next, I would say that we want to meet people where they really, really are. Oftentimes, even in friendship conversations, we want the person to feel better. But really, we need to create a forum where people can be honest about really where they are today and contain that and make that okay. So, So really, how did you sleep last night? You know, did you eat this morning? That sort of thing. And then we also want to help bolster people's kind of natural ways of coping. So we want to think with them about how they've always survived. What helped you before? I mean, Tony talked about, you know, a tragedy from his childhood. Like, how did you get through that, Tony? You know, so that we're helping people to start from the first moment to create their own little care package for themselves, which will be very different for each individual. So helping people to think about that with you. And then a final kind of top tip I would say, which is so important, is that we need to tune into the suffering and we need to offer help for the suffering. But we need to remember that the help doesn't have to come from us. 
And I think that is a really, really key thing to say, especially in healthcare, that we often feel like problems are ours to solve. And so therefore we don't ask the question, but we can be a pointer to help. We can be a helper to help without being the help. So saying to people, how can I help you? If I had a magic wand and I could fix this, what would it look like? And then maybe offering that you assist them in getting help outside of yourself. And I just think that's a really important one because we do in healthcare feel that we've got to take things onto our own shoulders and we can be supportive to people and get them to help without taking it all onto our own shoulders. So don't be frightened to ask the question and be and point somebody in the right direction. And those are kind of my top tips, yeah. Carla Croft, Anthony Ornat, thank you so much for being the first ever guests on Treating You. Thanks everyone for listening to this first ever episode of Treating You. If you enjoyed it, let us know what you think. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. Share it on social media. And if you want to, you can leave us a review and a five-star rating, if that's possible, on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or you can visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. Stay safe, look after yourselves, and we'll be back soon to treat you with another episode. Oh,